We, uh, as you know, have been going through the book of Acts, and every now and then in the sermon series, what we do is we create a little pause, we call it a prophetic pause, a chance for the Spirit of God to speak to us in a, in a new way. And this uh, particular time, we're still focused on the book of Acts, but kind of highlighting it or thinking about it in a new way. And uh, I asked John Pell to share with us this morning. John is a good friend of mine. I've known him for a little over a year now. And uh, he moved here from California, Stanford, and is now teaching at Whitworth. And uh, it's just a fun guy to get to know him and his family. And uh, I'm grateful for him coming and sharing this morning. So if you would, welcome with me, John Pell. Good morning, everybody. Um, um, I can't help but there's this ironic thing that happened last service because there was about 10 of my students sitting in this area. And what I'm talking about today is the idea of time and how to organize your time correctly and to, to think about not being overwhelmed by the busyness of life. And I really enjoyed the idea that all of those students, the struggle that they have with busyness is most likely an assignment I gave them last week. And then I had the audacity to show up on Sunday and tell them, you might want to think about how you're managing your time. Um, (laughs) Just really like that sort of headspace they have to be in when they left. Um, uh, So uh, when my wife Sarah and I lived in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, on Wednesday afternoons I would play basketball with a group of pastors and missionaries and ministers in 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 the Greensboro area. And if any of you have lived in the Southeast, uh, you know that basketball is like king, right? Everything, the most important thing is basketball. Football, it's a cute sport that Neanderthals play. Um, (laughs) But basketball, this is where it's at. Um, And so not only is basketball the greatest thing, but the University of North Carolina, Tar Heels, that is the singular thing. Um, So on Wednesday afternoons, Um, at Greensboro Baptist Church, if you happen to be playing basketball with Pierce Landry, six foot six, silky smooth jumper, who played for the 1993-1994 University of North Carolina Tar Heels, you are stoked. Now many of you are saying, who's Pierce Landry? It's a good question. He never really ever got off the bench um, for the 1993-1994 University of North Carolina Tar Heels. but he, he played with no fewer than 10 future NBA players. Um, and all this is to say is that even if you are the last guy off the bench at the University of North Carolina, you are exponentially better than everyone that you're playing with on Wednesday afternoons at Greensboro Baptist Gym. Um, so when Pierce Landry asked me if I wanted to go out and have coffee and get to know him, I was incredibly excited. Um, I was the new kid. We had moved from Washington. I was uh, starting my first year of graduate school working on my Ph.D., um, and he said, hey, let's go out uh, and have coffee. I'd love to get to know you a little bit. Uh, and I assumed um, that this Adonis, this man that was, you know, just indescribable in his, his beauty from the three-point line, um, was going to be awfully busy. Uh, and so when I asked him about how, uh, you know, what, what would work best for you, he said, just send me a time and, and we'll make that work. Um, and so I sent him a time and we had coffee. And, and he, I remember him telling me about his life. After college, he went to Charlotte and worked as a, a broker, and he was making a lot of money. Um, but he was working 80 hours a week. Uh, he had a young family, 
And he said, I realized that at that time my life was so out of rhythm. I had made all of these other things more important than my first commitments. Um, and he said, so I quit my job. I moved back to Greensboro. And um, I started working with a ministry that was kind of like Young Life for Adults. So he spent most of his time meeting with men and working them, you know, sort of working with them as they dealt with uh, issues of being husbands and fathers and employees and students um, and sons. Um, and he, he told me, this is the thing that stuck with me. He said, I never tell people that I'm busy. Everybody's busy. If you really want to show people what Jesus looks like, then live in a different rhythm than the one of this world. And I've wrestled with that statement since that day we had coffee, and I continue to wrestle with it. Um, and as we've been talking about acts and the kind of community that we want to be, and the kind of people that we want to be, I can't help but think that some of this has to do with our perception of how we spend our time and how we exist in this world. So that's what I want to talk about today. Um, but before we talk about that, before we talk about sacred things and sacred spaces, let's take a chance here just to pray and ask God to be with us. Lord, thank you for uh, this community. Thank you for this time that we have this morning to think about uh, how you move and breathe and live through us and the places that you're calling us to. We ask that you would be with us in this time. We trust that you will be. Uh, we say these things in your name. Amen. Uh, our conception of time, I would argue, says a great deal about our conception of God. And our conception of God says a great deal about what we understand the gospel to be. And what we understand the gospel to be says a great deal about how we're going to live and move in this world. Um, and so... It sounds strange to sit and sort of ponder this question of time, um, but I think it's really important. Um, and one way that I've been thinking about this question is we've been going through Acts and looking at this radically different community that has things in common and they share and they live, and they seem to live in real contradiction to the rest of the world around them. And I've been asking myself this question, do I live in such a way that people would notice me as being different than the rest of the world around them? Um, do I kind of move in a different rhythm? Do I exist in a different kind of time? Um, and I don't know about any of you, but I know that I have been uh, at lots of things where we talk about time, and it usually is something like time management, how to manage your time better, how to use your calendar more effectively, um, how to do the right kinds of things. Um, but no one has ever really stopped and asked me, what do you think time is? What is time? That sort of basic question. We always go to the place where we say, well, what are you going to do with it? But we don't really ever ask the question, well, what is it to begin with? Um, and that's what I want us to think about today. Typically, we have one kind of orientation towards time, and that is called chronology. And chronology is pretty simple. It goes something like this. Uh, you're born, uh, and you do stuff, and then you're dead. Um, <laughs> right? And the... And the psh, well, that sounds simple. Well, kind of, except the only shh, that noise was us saying, but I'm going to fill up the space between that with really important things. And so our idea of chronos is that we move and we fill things in and we do lots of exciting stuff. Now, chronology comes from the, this idea of chronos, and chronos in art is represented as a um, figure with a sickle and an hourglass. Um, and the idea here is that chronos is aging. He has lost his youth. 
and he represents this constant threshing of time. You cannot escape him. It is always chasing after you. The only thing that you can do is run and stay in front of him, but eventually he'll catch you. Um, some of you know the, the, the myth of Kronos, and I didn't want to show a picture of anything like this on a Sunday morning, um, but Kronos um, is often called Father Time, which is ironic because he ate all of his kids. Um, <laughs> they were free range, so it was okay. Um, um, and the reason he eats his children is because nothing can escape him, and he will not be less than anyone. He is the thing that will always win out the day. He consumes all things. He takes everything from us. Time is passing. Um, it's fleeting and it's limited. So this makes uh, this the sense of Chronos is what informs the question that the apostles have at the beginning of Acts um, when they're asking Jesus about what's going to take place next. Uh, Jesus has uh, been resurrected. And they're sitting there before the ascension, and the apostles ask him, they say, So when, um, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Will you at this time, Kronos, this chronological time, will you restore Israel? And I get their question, right? They want to know, well, what do we do next? What do we do next? When are you going to complete this whole project? I mean, if it's going to be next Thursday, we're going to need to prioritize. What's going to be the most important stuff? And you can imagine the apostles pulling out their day scrolls, looking at their calendars, trying to assess what's going to be our action step. Do we have any key performance indicators, God? Right? Do we know what's happening? Some of the younger ones are like, I'm new to this. I don't know what's going on. Mom, <laughs> 30 is the new 20. Um, you know, we just need to know what's happening here. And what's fascinating is that this is how Jesus responds to them. He says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In his response, Jesus makes clear that time is not something that he is bound by in our sense, but rather that time, the time of Yahweh and his kingdom, is bound to God himself, that it's a different kind of thing. And the word that Jesus uses there is the word kairos. Uh, and kairos is in opposition to chronos. Kairos under, it means a kind of time in which there is fullness, in which there is presence, in which you are in the right space, that you are in the right perspective, that you are allowing different kinds of rhythms to inform the way you move and breathe in the world. In art, kairos, or opportunity, or chance, um, is often portrayed as a young man, strong and agile. He stands in a, precariously on either a, uh, a wheel sometimes, or a ball to represent that he is always kind of moving, and you don't necessarily know where he's going to be. And he has in his, his hand, usually up like this, a kind of razor to represent the knife's edge of opportunity. And from the top of his head, he has this flowing lock of hair. And the, and the idea of Kairos as a figure is this, that if you are present, if you are available, then Kairos will come by and you can grab that lock of hair. And opportunity is yours. Kairos is that place where everything comes together. Who we are, being present, matter, time, space. It's all located in that moment. Uh, Kronos is defined by this kind of continual passing away of things. This constant threshing of father time as he chases after you to your ultimate demise. That things are going away. Kairos is about being 
about standing, about waiting, about giving oneself time to consider and to think and to wait. Kronos is about calendars and dates and time, and it's this constant struggle between our wills and the unrelenting sand of hourglasses. While Kairos may be open to opportunities, and it's the place where space and time and our physical being converge, our culture has let Kronos win the day. And there's implications to this kind of belief, that we always live in this kind of time being chased away. We fill up our schedules um, with lots of great and good things. Uh, And we try to do multiple good things all the time. How can we multitask better? What kinds of things can I be a part of? What activities should I do to stack my resume? I want to be in every club. That will help me get scholarships. I want to do all these good things because that says something about how good I am. We kind of try to fill our time. And what's fascinating about living in this world that's defined by Kronos is that it does not seem to fulfill us in the ways we might imagine. Uh, Tim Kreider of The New Yorker writes uh, that for most people that feel stressed about their daily schedules, their busyness is purely self-imposed. Work and obligations they've taken on voluntarily, classes and activities they've encouraged their kids to participate in, they're busy because of their own ambition or drive or anxiety, because they're addicted to busyness and the dread and dread what they might have to face in its absence. Busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. We are busy to fill our time, to make the most of this passing life, to fill out our timeline with lots of activities. Even our technologies are designed to do this, right? We have faster phones. We can now have correspondence with people not based on months or weeks or days, but based on seconds. Any website you visit has comments where you can enter into a discussion, but your ideas fade away simply because something else came after that. Our calendars are divvied up by hours and days, and we can scroll up and down, seeing all these things that we fill. And the problem with all of this is that we live in a world where filling up your time is what is expected. We live in a world that believes in the unicorn of multitasking. We live in a world where there are churches that only meet online. And yet there's no evidence that you can do more than one thing at a time well. And there's never been a time in human history when people report to be more lonely and disconnected. We hide behind busyness. We hide behind all the good things that we do because if we stop, if we were to slow down, if we were to be less concerned with all the things that we fill our time with, we might stop existing. And what do I mean by that? Well, if we live in a world where we imagine that we are defined by the things that we do, What happens when you no longer do things? Who are you? What do you do? What are you good for? The Hebrews had a much more nuanced understanding of Kairos, and it works something like this. They believed that there was the world of heaven, and this was a kind of euphemism, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. This was an idea that This is the place where God's perfection would would reign 
completely and fully forever. Um, it was a reminder that there could be a better way to live, that there could be a time and a place where we would be present with Yahweh in all things. This was the kingdom of heaven. Then there was earth. Earth was this place where we existed in the current moment, bound to it in a certain kind of way, always working to try to get back to the garden, to get back to our first vocation of naming the animals. When we were co-creators uh, with God and we were living in a time when Yahweh knew us. And in the space between heaven and earth, there was the temple. And the temple was not, as many of us may, may imagine, a kind of a tin can tied to a string that was tied to another tin can where you could go to the temple and talk to God momentarily and occasionally he would light topiary on fire and speak to us. Um, But rather the temple was evidence that heaven was always already breaking into earth. That the temple was the place where we could be present in the presence of Yahweh. That we could stand, even if only momentarily, in a new creation. And so the idea of the temple was incredibly important. It pointed and reminded Israel that they were attached and tied to an ancient kind of rhythm, a deeper way of living a different kind of time, one that was infinite, one that was in the presence of God. The temple was the place where heaven and earth overlapped, and someday these two things would come together completely. And the temple was evidence of such a thing. So when Jesus starts saying things like he does in John's gospel on uh, chapter 2, there was lots of questions raised. The Jews then said to him, to Jesus, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. I love this idea, I love the, the response that the Jewish leaders have to Jesus, which is like incredibly literal, right? It's fantastic. We don't often read the humor. We're too boring when we read the scripture, right? Destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. Dude, it took like 46 years to build this thing. And you're a cruddy carpenter. <laughs> you don't even have a job. You're always wandering around. You don't even have food. Um, <laughs> how are, right? So this idea that what Jesus was saying is so far beyond what anyone could even imagine, um, ultimately it gets them in a lot of trouble. Um, but at this moment, Jesus is reminding us that, well, I am this space between heaven and earth. I am the temple. Where I move, the ground is made holy. When you are with me, you are experiencing the presence of Yahweh. I move and breathe and live in a different kind of rhythm because I am the evidence of this kingdom that is coming. Now, to use a, a, a sort of a, a, a new community phrase, I hadn't heard this until I came to new community, but Jesus lives into this idea that he is in the space between heaven and earth. And this is when the problem really starts for the Jewish leaders, right? It's one thing to say ridiculous things like you're a temple. That's fine. It doesn't make any sense. That's okay, right? You can, you can be the best dragon hunter ever, um, right? There's no dragons. But here's the problem. Jesus starts actually living into this. Right? He starts having extravagant dinner parties with prostitutes and tax collectors 
in the middle of the week. Not even during holidays. Right? He starts to heal the sick and raise the dead. Um, And then he says crazy things like, well, the kingdom has come because now you are raised from the dead. Uh, He starts to do uh, miraculous deeds on the Sabbath. And all of these things were reminders of when heaven would come in its fullness. Jesus is acting as if heaven is broken into earth. And that's really problematic, but it doesn't stop there. In John's Gospel, uh, right before Jesus ascends, he tell, or right before he's crucified, he tells the disciples this. He says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I have said the Spirit will receive from me and will make known to you. Before he's crucified, Jesus tells the disciples that the Spirit of God is going to dwell in them. Not only is he the space between, but we will become the space between. We will be an example of heaven breaking into earth. We will have the opportunity to live in a new kind of time, a kind of time bound by the wholeness and the presence of Yahweh. When we think of time and our being in this kind of fashion, um, it radically changes some of the ways that we think about uh, what the scripture is telling us um, in, in a couple really quick, simple ways. One of them is that um, we often hear, uh, you know, we often hear people talking about, uh, don't worry about tomorrow, today has enough troubles of its own. And we often interpret that phrase as some kind of like uh, call to go and do crazy things, right? Like, I blew up my car and I, now I only eat bugs and I live underneath the bridge, and, uh, right? Because, um, this kind of rah rah sis boom bah, um, which I think is ultimately simply chronos. You're simply trying to make the best of the days that you have. The reason why we worry about today and not tomorrow is because there's infinite tomorrows. You're not going to run out of them. So when Paul tells us to go and speak boldly in the name of the Lord, to walk in confidence, he's not saying that we are to be a people defined by our obnoxious nature of always pointing out the flaws in the other. But rather, we can walk in confidence because we move and breathe and live in a different kind of time. Not only do we move and breathe in a different kind of time, we can welcome others into that, that they can begin to live in a way that is contrary to this world that is so destined to destroy us. But that's really the problem, is do we actually live in such a way as to be out of time with this world and in time with something deeper and more infinite? I've become convinced as we've been studying through Acts that it's this kind of strange rhythm that the people in the first century see in the disciples. that they see a group of people that are living in strange kinds of ways and they're attracted to it. They seem to be more concerned with all of these different kinds of ceremonies and attributes uh, to a community um, that it's, it's, it, it can't help but be attractive. Um, so in Acts, when Luke writes, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. 
They sold property and possessions to give to one another who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. When the Lord And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It doesn't say, and I think this is one of the things that's really important for us as we wrestle with these ideas, it doesn't say that all these people just went and quit their jobs, right? They did not become like some kind of, you know, um, neo-Bavarian alpaca farmers living off the land in financial aid. Um, they, they were people who had particular tasks and particular responsibilities, but those responsibilities and tasks were always, always in the service of these bigger more important ideas and community rhythms. They lived into their calling as a people because they ate with each other. They prayed with each other. They learned from one another. These weren't the only things. These were the most important things. These were the things that organized their being. To model what it meant to be heaven breaking into earth was to do things that are contrary to the task of this world, to simply break bread with each other to pray with each other, to learn from one another. All of these things require us to step out of the frantic pace and rhythm of Kronos. I think the greatest challenge we face in our contemporary moment is surviving the tyranny of chronology. What do I mean by that? Well, you can only go one way. You can always go forward. That's the only thing that our version of time allows for. You can only do the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. And you are constantly running away from time. The way that we imagine time prohibits us from ever just being, from ever just resting. I'm guilty of this all the time. I sit in the back often and play on my cell phone, seeing if my students have emailed me. I can't really find times just to be. And in our culture, we've developed, uh, we've developed ways to deal with this. If our lives are going to be defined by doing things, then the things that we do are going to be the things that define us. So if we do enough of the right things, then we must be the right kind of people. And if we do more right things, then we must be really good people. And if we do a lot of really good things, then we must be really great people as evidenced by our actions. And that's exactly what the scripture says, right? God will love you because you do stuff. Is that not in there? <laughs> Oops. Um, so what would it mean to live in this space between heaven and earth? To live into a different kind of rhythm. One that was organized not by the calendar or the clock but one that was organized by principles and by ethics and by relationships. I think that's the great thing about this conversation is that when we think about this space between, it's not bounded in the same ways that Kronos is. For each of us, it may look a little bit different. It may look a little bit different for each of us to get into the kinds of rhythms that reflect who Yahweh is, and who Jesus is, and what the Spirit does for us. For some of us, uh, that probably means that we need to take into account the things that we spend most of our time doing. What is filling up your everyday life? Is it in support of your most essential covenants? 
are your daily activities in support of relationships with your family and friends with God? To live in the space between heaven and earth is to live in the space where we are present with each other. Do we do things that allow that to happen? For some of us, living in rhythm probably looks like breaking bread with others more often. But not just with the stranger, but maybe with our own families. Maybe it means taking time to slow down and to sit around a table together in the evening and be reminded of the presence of God over good food and conversation. For some of us, it probably means letting go of the pride that's connected to our work and to live in the humility of knowing that we are not responsible for building our own kingdoms. We are certainly members of one we do not make our own. For some of us, and probably for most of us, it means saying yes to very few good things and saying no to a lot of very good things. Let me say that again. For most of us, it probably means saying yes to a few very good things and no to a lot of very good things. Bad commitments to a lot of things is the same as no commitments to the right things. For some of us, it's probably realizing that there is not that one job for you, that there's not that one place for you to live, that there's not that one person that you can partner with, and instead living in the reality that we are in a space where heaven is breaking into earth. So even your job, even your home, can be evidence that heaven is breaking into earth, right? Even heaven can break into earth if you live in Spokane. Uh, did any of you see this picture? Did anyone see this picture a couple weeks ago? Okay. Uh, this picture was taken on a subway during rush hour in New York. Um, and the, the, the woman that posted the picture wrote this. She said, heading home on the Q train yesterday when this young African-American guy nods off on the shoulder of a Jewish man. The man doesn't move a muscle, just lets him stay there. After a minute, I asked the man if he wanted me to wake the kid up, but he shook his head and responded, he must have had a long day. Let him sleep. We've all been there, right? He was still sleeping soundly when I got off the train 20 minutes later. Uh, later... Uh, after this picture got published, reporters found this man. His name was Isaac Thiel. And they asked him why he thought the photo was so popular. And he said, well, maybe the photo wouldn't have become so popular if people weren't seeing a Jewish man with a yarmulke and a black guy in a hood. And because of that, these things don't usually correlate to each other. However, before the reporter left, Thiel, Thiel stopped them. And he said, but there's only one reason that I didn't move. There's only one reason that I let him continue sleeping, and that has nothing to do with race. He was simply a human being who was exhausted, and I knew it, and happened to be there, and have a big enough shoulder to offer him. I think this is a great illustration of living here, that to live in the space between heaven and earth is to be the kind of people that are present to others, that to live in the space between heaven and earth is to be the kind of people that understand that Yahweh is breaking into this world and we just so happen to have the keys to the kingdom. And that's not a bad gig. 
And while I think we've been spending a lot of time thinking about what we can be as a community um, uh, by, by looking at acts and what they're doing, and a lot of us have been wrestling with what do all these things mean? How should I change my life? Um, the reason I wanted to spend time thinking about time is because my argument would be this. We can't be the kind of people that bring the kingdom unless we can be the kind of people that live in the kingdom. We have to learn how to live in the present, to live in this time, to live in the presence of Yahweh. We have to learn to find and return to more ancient rhythms of life. We have to learn how to be. Let's pray.